Amen. So we have a lot to do. We're going to talk about the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it's massive. It's huge. We're going to jump in and try to just piece it apart. So we're in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, picking it up in verse 42. Mark 15, 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, this is the ruling class of Israel, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage. And went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought, bought a linen shroud And taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, saw where he was laid. Joseph of Arimathea. He's an important guy. He's a very important guy. Wealthy has class, has status. He's part of the ruling crew of Israel. He's connected enough to go talk to Pilate so you know he's a big dude. You couldn't just march in and get a meeting with Pilate unless you were a very important guy. And he takes all of this and he risks it. He's risking his reputation. He's risking his career. He's risking his membership in the council. He could potentially be risking his life when he says, okay, I'm gonna go ask Pilate for the body of Jesus and give it a proper burial. It's amazing. And you may already know this. He also happens to be fulfilling a 700-year-old prophecy So Isaiah 53, verse nine says this. Speaking of Jesus, it's the suffering songs of Isaiah. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. You're like, what is that? That seems like a little bit of an oxymoron. Wicked, rich man, what's going on? Well, he died on a cross between two robbers, the wicked. And 2,000 years ago, if you died with the wicked, you were buried with them as well. And every city 2,000 years ago would have like a common cemetery because poor people could be buried there, but also travelers would be buried there. Like today, it's no problem to transport a body from halfway across the world, put him in a refrigerated container, put him onto a plane and get him here. 2,000 years ago, if you died in a city, it was impossible to get you home. You couldn't just put a body on a donkey in August and take it two weeks up to Nazareth. That just didn't happen. So what would happen is they would be buried in the city 
that they died. So it happened all the time. So Jerusalem would have just this common graveyard where the common people would be buried, where these two robbers would have been buried, where Jesus, if it was not for Joseph of Arimathea, would have been buried at all, buried as well. And he fulfills this prophecy. Now, why is he the one that fulfills this prophecy? I love verse 43. It says, he took courage and went to Pilate. He made a decision, took courage, knew what it could potentially cost. Is courage a word we use very often now? There's this great little program in Google that you can put in any word and it goes back hundreds of years and tells you how often it's used. So 1800s, man, it was a very important word in America. And since then, it's just been an exponential decrease in our use of the word courage. We just don't even value it anymore. Like courage isn't even a word. I think it should be. I think Christians should be courageous people risking what God has entrusted us for the kingdom. We should be courageous, right? We should be hearing stories about courageous Christians. Have you guys heard of Richard and Sabina Wormbrand? Anyone heard of Richard and Sabina Wormbrand? Okay, let me tell you their story. Believers in the 1940s in Romania. He's a preacher, he's up and coming. People are starting to like pay attention to Richard. Like, wow, this guy's great. Communists come in after World War II. Russian communists, they take over the country. It becomes part of the Soviets, right? And they systematically begin to gather together all the important people and they bring him into this massive auditorium there in Romania. And what they want is this. They want the important people of Romania to say how great Stalin is. And he has already killed millions of people at this point. How great communism is, how it's the answer to everything. And how great atheism is that we don't need Jesus anymore. And so they're getting up and they're proclaiming this. And Richard and Sabina Wormbrand are in this group and they're sitting there listening to this. And this is the conversation that happens as they're sitting there. I have it up. Sabina, Richard, stand up and wash away this shame from the face of Christ. They are spitting in his face. Richard, if I do so, you will lose your husband. Sabina, I don't want a coward for a husband. <laughs> oh! I love that. I don't know if I want to be married to that, <laughs> but I love it, man. <laughs> like, whoa. And so he did. He stood up, he took the stage, and he just started to proclaim the supremacy of Jesus Christ. The communists bum-rushed him. He escapes from them out of back door, but not for long. Eventually, they get him and his wife. They arrest them and by, they put them in prison. This is his mugshot from when he's arrested. So he's, man, put in prison. Sabina's in for three years, she gets released. Richard is in solitary confinement for three years straight. That kills people. This is what he did to keep his sanity. Every day, he would re-preach the messages he had preached. Day after day. Hour after hour, he would pace his cell and just re-preach his old messages. Hundreds and hundreds of times. And the guards outside, guess what they're hearing? Hundreds and hundreds of times. Ah, right? 
I mean, just imagine that. It's hard for you to listen to one of my messages. What if I preach it hundreds of times to you in the same day? My kids are like, yeah, I've heard that. Been there. <laughs> right? Finally, the guards are like, we can't take it anymore. Get him out of here. So they release him to the general population. He's there for another five years. And finally, they, get, they release him from prison. This is what he looked like when he was released. Yeah, that's what Soviet prisons do to people. And they tell him, do not preach of Jesus again. Guess what he immediately does? Preaches Jesus. They arrest him again. This time they sentence him to 25 years. It would have been it for him. He would have died in prison. But there was a general amnesty that the Soviets gave to political prisoners after six years, and he was part of that release. They told him again, do not preach Jesus. Guess what he does? Immediately begins to preach Jesus. Well, there's a group of Norway believers that knew him and his wife, and their hearts started to go out to him. He's gonna die there. So the communists in the 1960s were actually selling political prisoners to raise money. That's how cash-strapped they were. And normally for 1,900 bucks, you could buy somebody out of the Soviet Union and set them free. But for Richard, they wanted $10,000, which back then was a ton of money. So these Norway believers got together, they raised the funds, and they bought freedom for Richard and Sabina. Well, they end up in the United States. And if you know the politics of the 1960s in America, there was a group of high-level politicians, elected officials in America that had a heart for communism. They're like, it's not so bad, you know, you can do it the right way, this is the right way to do it. So there was a group, and you know, your history, that was it. So uh, they wanted to hear from Richard, like, really? Come on, it's not that bad. So he comes in and he testifies before the U.S. Senate, and there's a group that was very compassionate to communism. And they're like, well, you know, you're saying all this. What's your proof that it's so bad? And this is literally what he did. He tore off his shirt and said, how about these? And just shows the torture wounds. What a stud. Man, why didn't I hear these stories when I was a kid? Just courageous Christians that said, I don't care what it costs me. The Joseph of Arimathea's, the Richard and Sabina Wormbrands. And there's now an organization that they found called the Voice of the Martyrs. You can get online and it continues to look up great heroes of the faith as well as where the church is being persecuted today. Just brilliant. Do we have a heart for courage like that now in the church? Or have we gone soft and easy and almost pansy-ish in our faith? Have we? Man, let me give you two verses on this from the book of Hebrews. One, I was just talking to a guy about it this week. It's Hebrews chapter 10, verse 39. It's so good, you should memorize it. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. How good is that? Being courageous is not the absence of fear. Being courageous is fearfully doing the right thing. You get that in that conversation where Richard says, if I do it, you're gonna lose your husband. 
And he knew, he counted the cost, he realized, but he still did what was right. Joseph of Arimathea knows what this could cost him, but he still does what's right. Edgewater, take courage. Take courage, do what's right. What's the worst thing they can do to you and I today? What's the worst? Block us on Facebook? You should rejoice, that's a gift. Thank you. I shouldn't be on there anyways. Praise God, right? Man, be courageous. And the second one is, it's about sin. I think we've grown soft on sin as well. We're not just courageously saying, no. Listen to this one, Hebrews 12, four. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. How about that? When people are saying, I just can't help myself. I just gotta do it. I'm gonna say, okay, where's the blood? Right? Are you bleeding yet? No. We don't have that kind of angst in us and holiness in us. It's like there's a Joseph, like Joseph of Arimathea, but he's the Joseph of Genesis that to me is the example of Hebrews 12.4. You know his story, sold into slavery by his 10 older brothers. Ends up in uh, Potiphar's household just cleaning toilets. Works hard, doesn't make excuses, doesn't play the victim, and eventually becomes number two underneath Potiphar. And then all of a sudden, Potiphar's wife takes a note of young Joseph and likes him and begins to try to seduce him, right? And one day she traps him, lay with me. And this is what Joseph says. He says, it's Genesis 39, nine. I cannot do this great wickedness and sin against God. Did Joseph have every excuse in the world to sin there? I'm a slave, I don't have a choice, right? I've done good all my life and look where it's got me. I deserve a break now, but he doesn't. He goes, I cannot sin and do this wickedness against God. Oh, let's be courageous Christians. Let's take courage. Stand up and do what's right, right? Don't allow sin and all the excuses the enemy wants to give us to allow ourselves a break. No way. We don't shrink back. Brilliant. That's the burial. Good news though. There's a resurrection, chapter 16. Yes. I know, you can fix them. I don't mind it. It's well used, right? I have tried to fix it, and it keeps breaking. Verse one. When the Sabbath was passed... Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. 
You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they had nothing, and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Resurrection. When I talk to people that doubt the faith, there are two giant objections that they have. Objection number one is God creating. And so there's always conversations on, did God create everything that we see? That's number one. Number two is Jesus' resurrection. Those are the big two questions. Did God create everything that we see out here? And 2,000 years ago, did God the Son walk out of the tomb? So when it comes to creation, this is what I say to people. I say, well, if you boil it down, when you look at all this, there's only two ways we got it. Either there's a mind great enough to do it, or number two, there has to be matter that has existed for eternity. And that is a law. Perhaps you know this. There's a law called the conservation of mass. That mass cannot be created nor destroyed. Conservation of mass. It's not a theory. It's not an idea. It is a law. The conservation of mass. Simply put, it means this. If there is something here today, that means there was something here yesterday. And you can take that back for 6,000 years or 60 billion years. Conservation of mass. Well, the Big Bang Theory seems to mean that at some point, there was not mass. So that leaves only one option. There's a mind that was great enough in history past to do all this out here. And then we get into the, like, that nitty gritty. Well, you know, what about this? What about that? And I always just ask him this. Okay, how do we get stars? There's a lot of stars out there. If we're gonna know anything about creation, how it came, we should know about the billion, billion stars, right? And most of us at some point took a high school class where they told us, right, these massive gaseous clouds that were out there after the Big Bang, their own gravity acted on them and they collapsed down at some point and ignited the nuclear fires and they became stars. Well, do you know that that is absolutely impossible? That that could not happen? Well, Matt, come on, you're not a physicist. I can't trust you. Great, let me give you a physicist that you might trust. Anyone here hear of Neil deGrasse Tyson? Heard of him? Massive astrophysicist, super intelligent guy, and a dedicated atheist. Listen to him talk about how we got stars. I'll quote him. Quote, not all gas clouds in the Milky Way can form stars at all times. More often than not, the cloud is confused. Now that's a problem. Confused clouds, right? Uh-oh, we need a government program to help the confused clouds. <laughs> the cloud is confused about what to do next. I don't know what to do, I'm confused. Actually, astrophysicists are the confused ones here. We know the cloud wants to, it wants to, it has the desire. <laughs> it wants to collapse under its own weight to make one or more stars. 
But rotation, as well as turbulent motion within the cloud, work against this fate. So too does the ordinary gas pressure you learned about in high school chemistry class. Galactic magnetic fields also fight collapse. They penetrate the cloud and latch onto any free roaming charged particles contained therein, restricting the ways in which the cloud will respond to its self-gravity. The scary part is that if none of us knew in advance that stars exist, frontline research would offer plenty of convincing reasons for why stars could never form. Did you just hear that? As an astrophysicist who said, yeah, we don't know why stars form. In fact, we should be pretty convinced there should be no stars out there. There's just as much proof if you look into it for Genesis 1-1 than any idea these guys have. It's a step of faith in either direction. My step of faith is in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That he's the one that spun it in. He's the one that named the stars. He's the one. It's him, right? And then I'll continue on and like, okay, okay, then where did life come from? And that argument is always, well, you have just the right chemical compounds and just the right temperature. And then all of a sudden life happens. I say, okay, well, if life could just happen like that, couldn't a resurrection just happen? You have all the right chemicals there. You have all the right, everything right there. Couldn't it just happen? No, it couldn't happen. Okay, whatever, right? So what about a resurrection? Let's look at this. There's a guy named Gary Habermas. He's a brilliant guy. He combed over 2,200 articles in French and German and English of secular historians. And he came up with what he calls the minimum facts of the resurrection. So it's any historian would agree, yeah, these things took place, right? So minimum facts of the resurrection. So he has 10 of them and he says, okay, based on these minimum facts, what is the best explanation for these 10 events to have happened? And his argument, I think it's profound, is the only way you can explain these 10 things is if Jesus walked out of the grave. I'm gonna give you all 10 of them. So number one, Gary Habermas, Jesus dies on a cross. Number two, he's buried. Number three, his death bums out his disciples. Number four, his disciples, and I put in, you know, they have all kinds of, well, it was a hallucination, mass, whatever. They saw Jesus, right? Number five, the disciples were transformed from scared refugees to bold proclaimers. Number six, they preach and proclaim Jesus is resurrected. Number seven, the church grew. Number eight, Orthodox Jews changed their 1,500-year-old day of worship. That's crazy. From Saturday to Sunday. Number nine, James, a family skeptic, believed. Number 10, Paul, an outside skeptic, believed. And Gary Habermas just says, how did this happen? How do you explain this? How do you explain the transformation? How do you explain 2,000 years of what we've seen in the church? The only way is through the resurrection. So let's quickly look at this. Verse one says, when the Sabbath was passed, 
There's actually two Sabbaths. There was the Passover, and then right after that, the Saturday Sabbath. So there was two days in a row where they could do nothing, and then on the third day, third morning, Sunday morning, they come. So it's a Sabbath day. I think Sabbath days are awesome. Charity and I were in Israel a number of years ago, and we saw the Sabbath day. And the Sabbath day is not, hey, let's sit at home and everybody just think through Psalm 23 over and over and over for 23 hours straight and then take a nap. That's not Sabbath. What we saw was amazing. The whole city of Jerusalem just shuts down. There's no traffic. There's no stores open. There's no shopping. And then all of a sudden, people show up at these parks and they spread out these blankets and they have these meals and their kids are playing together and they're slowed down. And Charity and I were walking through this park, seeing all this happen. And the most amazing thing of all, not a single person was on their phone. You know why? They have a kosher iPhone. Where sundown Friday, it shuts down and doesn't turn on until sundown Saturday. How awesome is that, right? Like Siri. And Siri just says, are you dying? No, click. That's it. (laughs) Take the day off. And Israel has a lot of the same kind of bad habits that America does, smoking and drinking, that kind of stuff. Israel has the longest life expectancy of any nation. I am convinced there's one reason because we are created for this six in one rhythm. It's from Genesis one on and it's healthy and it's brilliant and it's beautiful. And so these ladies, after those two days, they come and they're named, right? Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Salome. Why are they named? This is an ancient way. This is written in 60 AD. These ladies would still be alive. This is an ancient footnote, if you would, an ancient bibliography. Go talk with them. They're in Jerusalem. You can go talk with them yourself. Ask them, I'm giving you the footnotes. I'm giving you the bibliography. But it's all women. There's no men with them. Did you notice that? It's three ladies, no men. Okay, are you ready for some good first century sexism? Because you're going to get it right here. There's a guy named Celsus. He was a Roman historian, hated Christianity, was trying to refute Christianity's claims. And this is what he writes. And I'm quoting Celsus. This is not my opinion. This is Celsus. Quote, one of the reasons we know that Christianity can't be true is because the accounts of the resurrection are based on the testimony of women. And then he goes on to say, and I quote, we all know that women are hysterical. <laughs> yes, they are, aren't they? Okay. So that was the common knowledge back then, not just in Rome. So the Mishnah said this, these are people that cannot testify. Number one, gamblers with dice. Number two, lenders with interest. Number three, pigeon racers. Those pigeon racers. (laughs) Number four, Sabbath breakers. Number five, all women. So women were just tossed in with pigeon racers. Those (laughs) pigeon racing women, right? It was just, that was it. So Mark here knows all this, knows it's a hurdle for people to believe, knows it'd be much easier to say, Peter discovered it, John discovered it, but he doesn't. He says, 
these three women discovered the empty tomb. It makes his whole argument that much harder. When you're gonna talk about something fantastic and amazing, you're not gonna make it harder, are you? So if I claimed, hey, yesterday I was racing this Lamborghini in my Volkswagen bus and I blew its doors off. <laughs> on top of that, my Volkswagen was only running on two cylinders. Ha ha, right? I'm not gonna make it harder. It's already unbelievable. I only do that if it's true. See, Mark is telling the truth here. It'd be so easy to try to change it, but he's telling the truth. This is how it actually happened. This is an internal proof that the resurrection happened exactly like Mark is telling you because it's hard and he leaves it hard, okay? Going on, they bring spices. Why are they bringing spices? Because they think Jesus is dead. You bring spices to make a dead body smell better. That's why. Now, has Jesus said he was coming back in three days? Yeah, Mark 8, 31, Mark 9, 31, Mark 10, 33. If you know Mark and you've been with us now for the last year and three months, you know that Mark is very economical with his words. He doesn't waste words. So if he has said three times that Jesus has told his disciples, I'm coming back in three days, it was more like Jesus had said it 30 or 40 or 50 or 300 times. Mark just records three times because Mark is very economical. He said over and over and over again, in three days, I'm breaking out. And yet, none of his 11 disciples believe him, right? Not one of them is sitting at home on Sunday morning thinking, you know, it's been three days. And Jesus said multiple times to us that he was gonna come back. Maybe we should go check that out. Not one of them, right? They don't go and check out the very words of Jesus. Why? Because they don't believe it. This is a cut. This is a dig at these disciples. It's another proof. Right? So if I tell you like a, a, a fantastic story, it'll be hard for you to believe. If I said this, hey, when I was you know, 35, I hiked Mount Everest with no oxygen and I actually rescued five guys off the death zone and brought them down. You'd be like, eh, I don't think so. But if I told you this story, hey, yesterday I was up hiking Mount Baldy right here, just right back here, and I was up going up with my son, and I'm so out of shape at the top, I passed out, and my son had to carry me down. Would you believe that story? <laughs> yeah, you totally would. You'd be like, yeah, I can, I can see that happening, <laughs> right? That's what's happening right here. This is just another proof. These guys, all 11 of them, are sitting at home faithless. Wow. And this man in white shows up. He's in the tomb. Why are angels always like, Matthew puts it like this, shining like lightning? Why are they always in white? Why does Revelation say this? That the glorified Jesus, when we see him, it says his face shined like the sun. I've told you this before. I'll tell you it again and again. I think in the garden, Adam and Eve, when they were naked and unashamed, they actually glowed like light bulbs. You can't see the filament of a light bulb when it's glowing. Like we were designed to glow like that. We are supposed to be radiant image bearers. I think you still see hints of it today. At a wedding, the bride, what do we say about her? She's radiant and it's true. There's more red blood cells in her face in those moments than normal. She is literally radiate. She's radiating out light right? But because of sin, we're all low wattage now. 
like a watch battery. That's it. But it's still there. There's hints of it, right? They glow. And this is what this, this man in white says. He says, come and see that the tomb is empty and then go and tell. To me, that's all church is. There's church. We come on Sundays to be reminded the tomb is empty. Jesus is king to get our cups full. And then we're to go and tell this good message wherever God has planted us in homes, in neighborhoods, on job sites, how we participate in the civics of our community. We're to go and tell. We come because this world pokes holes in us all the time and we leak it out and we got to come and be refilled so that each week we can go out and retell the good message. Come and see and go and tell. And he says, go tell the disciples, verse seven, and Peter, how good is Jesus? How kind is our king? He doesn't say, hey, go tell those faithless, good for nothing, abandoning, totally fearful, non-courageous morons to meet me in Galilee because I got some things to tell them and get Peter and tell him he better have a good excuse for what happened three days ago. <laughs> no. Go tell them that we get together again. Go tell them, right? Because the Bible says where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And you might be sitting in here right now and you may feel like, man, I disappointed Jesus three days ago. Oh, I'm such a blow it case. Oh, he's got to be mad at me. No. No. The angel would say to you, hey, I want to meet with you. I want to meet with you. You can come boldly before my throne of grace and obtain your help in need. What a brilliant king we serve, right? This is the central message of Christianity. You know that? This is it. The central message that Jesus, the king of the cosmos, came down, defeated death, and he is right now seated in complete control, seated at the right hand of the Father. It's the resurrection. Gary Habermas is right. You look at 2,000 years of what has happened. You look at the Richard and Sabinas of the world. You look at our history and you say, yes, the only explanation is Jesus is alive. You can't explain it any other way. Do you know that? And they try. 40 years ago, if you would have watched Discovery Channel the week before Easter, they would have given you this idea. It's called the swoon theory. You ever heard that about the resurrection? That Jesus on the cross never actually died. Got really close to it. And when they took him down and put him into the grave, the cool refreshment of the air and the niceness after a long three-day nap, he woke up, shoved out a two-ton stone, and then walked up to Galilee. That was the predominant idea 40 years ago. So J. Vernon McGee, I probably lost it when I dropped my Bible out. J. Vernon McGee, that, if you want to listen to a great old preacher, Listen to J. Vernon McGee. He's amazing. He was given a letter by a lady who said, my preacher just preached on the swoon theory. What do I do? This was his response. He wrote her back. He said, quote, take your preacher, 
beat him with a cat of nine tails 39 times. <laughs> Cover his head with a bag. Punch him repeatedly in the head. Force him then to carry a heavy wooden cross for a few miles. Nail his arms and legs to a cross and leave him there for six hours. Plunge a spear into his heart and embalm him for 70, with 75 pounds of spices. Put him in an airtight tomb for three days and then ask him if he still believes in the swoon theory. If he is silent, he no longer believes it. <laughs> this is so good. Jesus is alive. That's the story. It means victory is possible. It means anything's possible. If Jesus walked out of the grave and he did 2,000 years ago, then guess what? Everything bows to our king. I don't care what it is. My marriage, your marriage, any marriage problem you have bows to King Jesus. Wayward children bow to King Jesus. Our culture, which is bending, 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 will still bow to King Jesus. Grant's past with all of its problems. And I grew up with guys. And I'm now watching their kids grow up. And I just say they are bad photocopies of bad photocopies. All of that bows to King Jesus. The drug problem in Grant's past bows to King Jesus. The school, whatever you think about schools, they bow to King Jesus, right? That's our hope. Every disease will bow to King Jesus. This is our hope. That God has been on a rescue mission for years and years. He is going to restore you and me to our full wattage, whatever it is, thousand watt, billion watt. He's gonna restore us as image bearers like we are designed to be that we will all be, Romans 8, 29, conformed to the image of the Son, that when we see him, we shall be like him. That's our hope. And we lose it so quickly. We walk out these doors and life disappoints us. We walk out these doors and the enemy deceives us. We walk out these doors and we experience suffering and we lose our hope. We lose the idea that anything is possible. I think it's why we love kids so much. Kids still have it, don't they? They still like glow with, with, the, with the glory we wish we had. They still believe anything is possible, that you can do it, right? They still believe Jesus, really. They have a vitality. Dreams can come true. It can happen. They don't have the mountain of regret and disappointment that many of us face, and it robs us of our hope. The, I could have been a contender if only, Right? Man, the story of the resurrection helps me grow young again. Let it help you grow young again. Jesus says there's coming a palingenesia, literally new genesis, new creation. That's coming for every single one of us. Do you know that? The palingenesia is coming for all of us. Praise God for that. Were these tombs really, that's what they are will be changed into something we cannot even imagine that when we see him, we will be like him. How incredible is that? Grow young again. It's the anchor of the soul. It's what allows you to be courageous. It's Revelation 12.10 that they overcame the evil one by the word of their testimony. I'm not afraid of you. The blood of the lamb and they love not their lives even unto death. 
Now, why would they do that? Because they had seen the risen king. They had seen the risen king and it transformed them. They kept looking to Jesus, their king. It's why every Sunday we do something here. We take communion. Why? I want you to leave fixing your eyes on Jesus. I want you to leave remembering the empty tomb, remembering the hope that we have of a palingenesia, all of us. And so Jesus today, I pray as we hold in remembrance your broken body. I pray that this morning, anyone who came in here desperate for hope, needing you to be king, needing to be reminded that you sit on the throne, that you speak and it becomes. I pray as we partake that you would feed the hope of every soul in here, that we'd walk out of here courageous because of you. Let's eat together. And we hold the cup. where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. That we're all like the disciples. We sit in unbelief on the third day. And yet you still beckon us, come, meet with me. That this thing is not about me and my greatness and my power. This thing is about you and your generosity and your grace and your mercy toward me. That it's the grace of God. It's the goodness of God that leads us to repent. Oh, draw us in with your goodness and your grace and your mercy. May we drink deeply of it today. Let's drink. Amen. So we'll sing one more song. After that song, there'll be people up here that would love the opportunity to pray for you. Nothing too big, nothing too small. We offer baptisms, lol right over here. If today's your day where you're saying, man, resurrection day, what a day. The old goes into those waters, it's washed away and the new comes up. Hope, palingenesia, a little, little sneak preview of it. If today's your day to do that, lol right over, love to explain to you what it means to be baptized. It'll be brilliant. Would you stand for this final song?